Welcome to the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast, hosted by the rock star of consulting, Alan Weiss. Be prepared to have your beliefs challenged and your behaviors questioned. Welcome, everyone, to the Uncomfortable Truth. It's my great pleasure to have my pal and buddy and colleague, Patricia Fripp, here today. She goes by Fripp, so when you hear me call her that, it's no disrespect. That's what she likes. Fripp was the elected the first woman president of the National Speakers Association, where the both of us are in the Hall of Fame, but she precedes me by quite a few years in there. She's delivered over 3,500 presentations, hundreds of virtual presentations as well, and organizations hire her to help them drive more business, polishing their sales conversations and their presentations to help leaders inspire action and build commitment through their words. Clients of her speech coaching include corporate leaders, technical and sales professionals, and seasoned professional speakers. She can improve anyone. It doesn't matter what their background is. And I send people to her all the time with great, great confidence. She's been called by Meetings and Conventions Magazine, one of the 10 most electrifying speakers in North America. She's the author of Get What You Want, Make It So You Don't Have to Fake It, and How's That Presentation Coming Along. She's the co-author of Deliver Unforgettable Presentations and Speaker's Edge. She's been named one of the top 30 women in sales and one of the top 30 global gurus. And her brother, the legendary guitarist Robert Fripp, who, as we speak, was was headlined in the New York Times a few days ago, uh, and his, his group King Crimson says, I am not surprised my sister gets paid to tell people what to do. She was a very bossy little girl. So Fripp, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Well, thank you. And as you know, Alan, I am still a bossy little girl, just more mature. I have experienced some of it, I have to admit. Uh, for, I, I've known Fripp for about 20 years, and I, I think uh, we did The Odd Couple, uh, which was for 10 or 12 years together, once a year. And um, we did The Odd Couple because we had very different approaches to the market at that time. Uh, we've both changed, but I, I do think I'm responsible for bringing Fripp somewhat over to the dark side, and I do apologize for that. <laughs> so, so given the fact that almost everybody in the world knows this, but we'll, we'll repeat it, you came over here to the U.S. Uh, from the U.K., and you, your career started as a hairstylist. Yes. Uh, and here you are today, uh, you know, one of the best-known speakers in the world. Uh, what do you think has been most accountable for your success? Without exception, good work habits. You mentioned my brother, and when we were kids at school, my brother was always top of the class, always number one. I was about 15, in a class of 30, and I thought, well, I know I'm not as smart as my brother. I'm probably not as smart as these other kids. So I never missed school. I received 100% attendance certificates for years. Never won anything else, but they always knew I turned up. So most likely, I would say good work habits. And I learned a valuable lesson from my father. He was a self-made entrepreneur, became very successful in our hometown. And the first day I went to work to serve an apprenticeship to be a hairstylist, as he pushed me out the door, he said, in your career, don't concentrate on making a lot of money rather concentrate on becoming the type of person people want to do business with and you most likely make a lot of money mm. so that was a good foundation you know let's talk about your discipline and work habits there was a convention where you were introducing me and they asked us to get together at, i don't know six in the morning some ungodly hour just to go through the routine 
And as most of us sat there, you were on the stage, fully uh, fully dressed in in uh, business attire, uh, made up, hair done, and you're you're strutting back and forth on the stage. And someone said, "I don't see Fripp on the agenda." I said, "Well, she's introducing me. She has two minutes, and this is how she prepares." And so you prepared more than I did for the speech. It was very impressive. I'm a great believer, Alan, that when you have a short presentation, an introduction, two minutes. Every word counts. However, you can have more impact than if you have half an hour on the program. Perfect example of that. Recently, I was asked to speak at Roger Dawson's memorial. He was a CPAE. He was British and negotiations expert. And although we weren't close friends, there was always a certain camaraderie with being British. And he had a wonderful sense of humor and a glamorous wife. And we really bonded. Roger, early in his career, was the president of the largest real estate company in California. And many of his old friends, in fact, his best friend from those days was the MC of the event. And I delivered the concluding two-minute presentation, which I took very seriously. And I crafted every word and internalized it. And as a result, his friends, who are now, of course, leaders in the real estate company, booked me to speak at their January 5th, <laughs> 25th meeting because of the two words. They hadn't seen a demo. They didn't know about me before. They just knew I would take my responsibility to them as seriously I, as I took the two minutes to say goodbye to Roger. Mm. You know, uh, the Gettysburg Address was delivered in two minutes approximately by Lincoln, and he was preceded by Edward Everett, a famed orator, who took two hours and nobody remembers him, right? So it's the same thing. Exactly. At the, at the Professional Speechwriters Association, that is an example that is used almost every year. Yeah, hell's a good example. Yeah. What do you think uh, is the biggest failure of people trying to influence others through communication today? What doesn't work? What doesn't work is if I had to come up with the focus, it would be you have to speak as an audience advocate. Now, the most probably common way of noticing this is a CEO or president of company will get on stage and say, you know, our strategy is sound, business is great, there's going to be a great return for our shareholders. Which is great if you're talking to the executive board or the shareholders. However, if you're talking to employees who are not shareholders, then you take the same message and look at it from their point of view. The strategy is sound, business is good, that means plenty of job security and chance of promotion. Same message, different focus. And when I work with executives, so one, it's a focus on who is this audience at this time and why would they care about your message? And the second, as you are a great storyteller, as you know, and people request the same stories they've heard before, <laughs> got to tell us this story. And 
one of my jobs is to ask questions and pull out stories that would never occur to them to tell. Uh, with one executive, he was talking about strategy. And I said, Bernard, when was the first time you realized the importance of strategy? And he said, I was a 14-year-old ball boy before the French Open. And when people came in to see the French Open, they didn't realize they were going to be watching a, a match of the ball boys. And I was playing against my best friend and in experience and talent, we were equally matched. However, our ball boy was his sister and she wanted her brother to win. So the way she was throwing the balls was trying to sabotage my game. So Patricia said, the first time I realized the importance of strategy when I was equally matched and at a disadvantage. And I said, we well, have to tell that story. And he said, well, would people care? And I said, yes, one, people will fight in the streets when they know the person. They'll respect a position, whether they like you or not, or feel they know you a lot. But at that particular meeting, 40% of their employees had been acquired. So they had no real relationship. And the goal was to have everyone know you're at the right company at the right time, our strategy is sound. And even if you didn't choose to work here, you're in the right place. And he said, you know, do people want to hear this? And I say, yes, because they want to see the person behind the position. And two, there is the subtext of your message. When they are talking amongst themselves, they say, well, you know, maybe the strategy is sound. Because after all, our president's been studying strategy since he was 14. <laughs> so I would say, one, focus your message. Two, show the, the behind-the-scenes you that you have a connection with them. They know more about you than it took to give in the short example. And I would say if there were a third way, Alan, and this doesn't matter if you're the top of the company or the bottom, we can blame the pandemic and not communicating as much. We can blame texting and shorthand, but we are turning into a nation of sloppy, non-specific speakers. And I notice, even with executives, when they're delivering their message, they say, we're kind of this and kind of that, and we do not improve what we're not aware of. And I just say, are you kind of going to do it or are you going to do it? Are you kind of recommending it or are you recommending it? And to get people to step backwards, record their rehearsals, but watch them and look at them. And the way you improve more formal or important presentations is to work on your everyday communications. People, oh, well, I'm fine when I'm on stage. No, you're not. You're going to take whatever you do and take it to the stage. It's just it'll be on steroids. We do not improve what we're not aware of. And I would say most executives, before I get in there and influence them more, 
is they rely on people to prepare their remarks for them who have no idea. They might know the subject and do the research, but they don't know how to connect to an audience. And then they have a tendency to put it in the teleprompter, record it without properly in changing it to suit them. When I'm on stage, uh, I feel like I'm just chatting with a friend. Uh, if there's a camera on me, I chat with the camera. If there's no camera, I just, you know, chat with whomever is in front of me. And whether it's 40 people or 400 people or whatever, it, I, it's just like, you know, I'm at a bar having a drink and we're discussing something. And I just find that's most natural. Uh, and so that is most natural and it works very well because if your audience is 440, 400 or 4,000, the secret which you have mastered, it's, it's just you're talking to one person 40, 400 or 4,000 times. So when you say, you know, have you, have you had this experience or does it make sense to you? You're talking to an audience, but everyone is hearing Alan is talking to me. I want to go back to something you said earlier, I think is very important. And that is we all have stories we don't realize are important. Uh, I was at the American Press Institute with a group of, of executives in the newspaper industry, and a woman said, well, look, I really have no story. And I said, well, let's just experiment. Where'd you go to school? And she says, I went to West Point. And I said, what year? And I said, wait a minute, that was the first year they had women. And she said, well, yeah, I was in the first group of women in West Point. I said, well, how'd that go for you? She said, well, I became battalion commander. I said, really? I said, and when you graduated, you went as a, as a second lieutenant into the army. She says, well, I was a paratrooper. And today, she's a Carmelite nun, and we still keep in touch. Now, this is a woman with no story. So I think one of the things you do so well is you help bring people's stories out. My brother, when we go out socially, he'll always say, let me apologize in advance. My sister is going to interrogate you. <laughs> <laughs> and over the years, he's always said, sister, you ask people such personal questions. And I say, and no one has ever said it's none of your damn business. I am genuinely interested. And if you think, Alan, I spent 15 years. No, I'm totally. I spent 24 years behind a hairstyling chair. And what was so good about that experience, because I always worked in very posh salons and we had fabulous, interesting, successful clients. And I got very comfortable learning from them. And I used to ask about their lives. As soon as I got comfortable, when I was a 15-year-old shampoo girl, as soon as I got comfortable with our affluent clientele, I used to say, well, what were you doing when you were my age? How did you make your money? Did you make it yourself or did you marry it? You know, if you made it yourself, how did you do it? If you married it, where did you meet him? <laughs> and, but I was so innocently curious. Nobody ever said that's none of your damn business. Because people love talking about themselves, especially when it's obvious you are fascinated with what they're saying. When I had my men's salon in the financial district of San Francisco, I learned so much about business. I just say, well, you know, what made you the best salesperson in your company? What did you do that a big company wanted to pay you millions of dollars for your little company? And I became so 
fascinated with business and so interested and many of my stories and examples when I first started speaking came not only from how I built a small successful business but what I'd learned from my clients. I've often considered that uh, people tend to talk to people who physically are given permission and trust to touch them. So a hairstylist, a manicurist, a masseuse. Then I ask myself, well, what about bartenders? They don't touch. And I think there's an emotional touching there uh, because they've heard it all and seen it all. And I think with what we do as speakers and coaches and so forth, we also touch people and therefore people become comfortable talking to us. Yes, I no, I would quite agree. And the key to connection, and this is why you are so good in business and what you teach consultants and speakers, the key to connection is conversation. The secret of conversation is to ask questions. And where you help people so much is the quality of the information you receive depends on the quality of your questions. And what is one of your best questions? And what is that worth? <laughs> Well, tell me something. Uh, let's let's talk about something really positive. What would you, ref and I, I hope there's an example of this, there might not be, but what would you say is an example of stellar, positive, excellent communicating today? A company, an individual, uh, a group. Uh, is there someone or some group, is there someone or some people you would cite as excellent communicators? Many of my executives in Silicon Valley who came from India because the whole culture is so family focused. You got an A, why wasn't it an A plus? And I have several clients that I'm thinking of got multiple degrees in different areas before they got to their job and then they said oh just an average overachieving American you know Indian child but the lesson there is yes some people are natural naturally smart and self-starters however when you come from a family or an environment or a culture that encourages you to be the best you possibly can. It sets you up for, it sets you up for whatever you want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. You know, I certainly have many wonderful clients who do not come from India. However, when I know my clients have this background I know that there are certain assumptions that are always true about their work ethic and their commitment to whatever they're going to take on they're going to be good clients to work with you and I, I are almost not say politics are a good place to look for great no. communication. Well, if you have gone there, you would have. I would have fallen yeah. off my chair if you had gone there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you and I are almost exactly the same age, and you know, if we look back twenty years ago, whenever it was we yeah. first met, uh, it was a quite a different world, of course. And you and I have both been successful in adjusting our lives and our businesses to contemporary times. Uh, what would you say is, has been, or what have been, some of the the key changes you've had to make? Uh, to adjust to changing times and to continue to be happy and, produ and productive and positive. All right. 
as you know, I have a, a second home in Las Vegas. And when I was there, the first few months that I had the second home there, within a three or four month period, I saw Cher, Elton John, and Tom Jones. And they were magnificent. And then I realized I am watching these artists in the 60s and I saw them all when I was in my 20s. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and I thought, what did these stars do to maintain the fan base for over 40 years? Two, what did they do to attract new fans that weren't even alive when these stars were in their heyday? And three, what did they do to stay relevant and booked in a very competitive world of show business? And then I thought for people like us, Alan, I have my 45 year pin from NSA. How do we stay relevant and in demand for 40 years? And the first lesson is, I remember many years ago at NSA, at a time when I had 120 keynotes a year, 75 or 80% booked with bureaus, and it was a heyday in my speaking career. And I made the statement, it is unrealistic for any of us to expect that we'll be flavor of the month with speakers bureaus for more than 20 years. And believe me, I milked it to death. <laughs> Nancy Lauderback, who was with Five Star, came up and said, Patricia, I would never have articulated it that way, but it's absolutely true. So one, it's realizing I might be in demand and doing well. However, it's not going to be the same way in 20 years time. And for me, and I can't say it was a brilliant strategy, but this would be true in most industries. I listen to my clients. And as you know, and many people have teased me about it, I would invest in speech coaches, act, you know, comedy writing classes, talk to an acting coach, how can you help me? Uh, screenwriting classes. I just love learning about performance and what can we take from here to here and incorporate. And however, there was a time, this wouldn't have happened to your, you because of your, your self-confidence. It took me a little longer to get it. But I thought, well, when people said, oh, well, can, can you be my speech coach? I'd say, well, no, go to Don Bonehard, you know, Ron Arden. Because I thought, well, if I hire speech coaches, how can I be one? And then it hit me. And it was a magical day, and this was a turning point. I spoke for a, a small personnel company in, in Walnut Creek, 45 miles away. And I gave my speech, the president of the company gave her a speech, we sat down, had lunch, and she said, do you do any speech coaching? I said, well, a little bit for my friends. And she said, I wish I was one of your friends. <laughs> I drove home and on my answering machine was this dynamic woman said, 
I don't know if you do this. However, if you do, I want to buy you for my husband for his birthday. And then she went on, she said, seven of my sales team came to a speaking class that you did this week and they came back raving. I don't know if you're an executive speech coach. However, if you are, I want to hire you to help my husband. He's a very good speaker, but he has the most important speech of his career. And I'd like to, uh, you know, buy your services for his birthday. If that's what you do. And I thought, okay, Lord, twice in an hour I got the message. And that was the day I formally put up my shingle. Yes, I'm an executive speech coach. So I called her back and I say, yes, I take, I am an executive speech coach when projects interest me. Two, my clients will tell me, will do exactly what I tell them to do and you'll pay me, you know, a fair amount of money. And that was my first formal client. And, and it was a wonderful ex experience. And although obviously, like you, I still give speeches. However, most of my work is helping other people in sales teams with their speeches. And you know, Alan, they might love you. But they say, well, we can't have you back for a few more years. Or, oh, well, you might go with another division. You know, we have the American Payroll Association. I've worked with them every year for nearly 30 years. However, that's the exceptional. But when you're a speech coach or a consultant, if they love you, they keep you. And so now I have the security of knowing that I have, say, six companies that although I might not work with them every single month, every project they have, they bring to me. And that is very nice. And it's also nice to know that you might not look quite as good on a iMac, but you're still working. I so that's a long answer to a short question. Well, it's our roles together. That's how it's always been with us. But come on. <laughs> So I haven't prepared you for this because I want to hear it off the top of your head. But, you know, you've given thousands of speeches and, and you know, all of us have traveled the world. Cite me a, a, a strange speaking experience you've had. A strange speaking experience. Let me think. Well, uh, I, I gave a speech at church last week, part one, part two's next Sunday. And it was... Uh, how to develop the number one skill God wants you to have, <laughs> which, of course, is to be a great speaker. And, and my, my point was, well, well, Jesus was a speaker. And through his actions in his world, he changed the world. So with our actions and words in our own little world, however you define your influence, you know, you'll, you can make the case. And I told, as part of my introduction, I said, you know, you know, Patricia, the one who was wears the hats as a successful speaker and coach, but her clients have varied. She's spoken from inmates in San Quentin to Georgia prison wardens, uh, Seventh-day Adventist pastors and sisters, uh, Franciscan sisters of the poor nuns, nuclear engineers and rocket scientists. And, you know, I had been a, a hairstylist before, so I, I got up and I said, now I know what you're thinking. Who would, why would you go to San Quentin? 
what on earth could you possibly say to nuns? And how does a uh, hairstylist get to be a speaker? So one of the most unusual was early in my career when, through, with some of my pals in the Dale Carnegie class, they were involved in a program called People, People Builders in San Quentin Prison. And I was new and I was enjoying speaking you know, before I went to NSA, but I was looking for, looking for people to talk to. And they, I said, oh, I'll go, you know, they asked. And I said, what would I say? And I was told, oh, Patricia, it doesn't matter what you say as much as that you care enough to go. And this People Builders program in San Quentin was for people who... You know, they chose to. And it's amazing in the worst of circumstances, or what we would think would be the worst of circumstances, there are always people who were more positive and looking to develop themselves in the circumstances they're in. And I walked in this room with my pals, and I was amazed. It was like an NSA opening mixer. You know, everyone seemed happy and cheerful to be there. And I had a conversation. This one gentleman said, uh, how long you been in America? I said, 11 years. He said, oh, that's how long I've been in here. I said, well, what did you do? <laughs> he said, I gave a young lady a ride from Dubuque to San Luis Obispo. I said, that doesn't sound bad. He said she didn't want to go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's also about 2,000 miles. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was in, Robert Perry Froggy for, was in for armed robbery and kidnap, no chance of parole. Now, from from different circumstances that would make the story a lot longer, but I got pally with 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 Froggy and some women. You know, there are always women who write to and go visit inmates in prison. And a hairstylist I had trained was one of these these people from this local group who would visit, and she married Froggy. And you remember. Earhart seminar training, the S training, went to prison and, and Froggy got involved because Froggy had said to me, you know, I, I came to the realisation I really am responsible for being here. You know, most people in here blame somebody else for why they would be there. He said, you know, it's not that much different out there. Everybody blames their circumstances on someone else rather than themselves. But anyway, Froggy got married and an S lawyer who heard about his story, said, the laws have changed, I'll represent you for nothing, and I think I can get you out, which he did. So Froggy married Pamela, the hairstylist I trained, and the last time I went into San Quentin, uh, I went back with Froggy. That was the first time he went back there uh, from the outside in his new life. So anyway, that was an interesting one. Another one earlier in my career, I spoke for a direct sales company, Deco Plants. And as you know, Alan, direct sales organizations are always so energetic and fun and they, you know, they get everyone excited long before the speakers come in. And in this case, they gave them big plastic hands. So whenever they heard anything that they liked, they 
big, big plastic hands. So, of course, I was going through my presentation and it was a good job I knew my routines well because you'd pause for a moment and they would beat the hands. <laughs> so you've got to wait till the sound before you continued. And then at the end, I was just reviewing my ideas before my close. I was reviewing my ideas and I just paused. And then everyone leapt to their feet and pounded their plastic hands together. And I thought, well, you know, a standing ovation with these hands. You know, I guess that. that was the end, whether I'd ended my speech or not. Can't beat that. It's a pleasure to have you here, especially because your attitude and your approach represent somebody with a calling. And I think when you have a calling, you're passionate about what you do and you genuinely... Uh, it's like it's contagious and infectious. You give other people enthusiasm and energy and so on. Would you tell my listeners um, how they can find you, uh, where to get your resources? And in case somebody wants to hire you for their husband or wife, <laughs> where do they pitch you? <laughs> well, the best is to go to my website, fripp.com. Fripp.com, you'll find wonderful free resources and a button with contact me if you want a conversation. Fabulous. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate it. I can't wait to see you again. Okay. My pleasure. Thanks, Alan. You've been listening to The Uncomfortable Truth with Alan Weiss. For free access to Alan's newsletters, audio and video resources, and for information about his global events and coaching communities, please visit alanweiss.com. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith.